as we cover many an insane movie and numerous cult TV phenomenons. Are you ready to get jacked up? Are you with us? Then listen on. Welcome all. We got legendary stunt performer Lane Levitt on the show, founder and president of Levitation Inc., which was a stunt company creation. His credits include The Ice Pirates, Nightmare on Elm Street 2 and 3, The Running Man, Halloween 4, Terminator 2, Army of Darkness, and the various Star Trek franchise. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Well, you must have dug deep because that was a long time ago. In my latest credits, like the new Matrix, and uh, you know, uh, uh, we get to do some cool stuff. You know, with Fast and Furious, a lot of really cool franchises I've been fortunate Boy. enough to be a part of. So, I, I, my jaw was dropping. I was just like, "Oh my god!" You know, Twenty Four, Boston Public. My god, yeah, Crossing Jordan. It's <laughs> awesome, big and small yeah, screen yeah. material. <laughs> yeah, IMDb only. I maybe only has about two-thirds my credits, even if that, and I never even, I don't really keep up my IMDb because uh, for me, it's the doing, it's not the uh, uh, the posing. You know, I, I just love to work. I love what we do. It's a creative business. It's creative people. It's a joy um, to participate in it. You know, I, I'm, I feel very thankful. Oh, totally. And... So I guess I'll mainly just ask, uh, just what fueled you? What made you think, hey, you know, I am going to become a five-time California champion and, and, and just motorcycles and just other just dangerous material that, you know, not just anyone can do? Well, my motorcycling career, I was uh, a professional factory rider for a European manufacturer. They paid me to ride for five years. That's all I did was travel all over the United States and around Europe uh, competing and representing uh, the company. And then I met my wife. I was doing week-long trials training camps uh, at, in Lake Tahoe. And she came and uh, after she, you know, uh, trained with me, uh, her writing, you know, she got a lot of publicity and somebody called her and said, do you want to be in a movie? And uh, then uh, her career took off. And then as my writing career quit, uh, somebody called me and asked me if I wanted to be on the Fall Guy TV show. Sweet. And, you know, doing a particular stunt. And I really 
uh, the industry was extremely um, competitive. No, gung ho and dangerous at that particular time. Oh, totally. I mean, I've been I've been married to my wife for about a month, and she got burned, and she went. She spent two weeks in the Grossman Burn Center. She compound fractured her wrist uh, on on chips. The TV series. Um, it was a t rough and tumble business when I started, and um, I started looking at the way that we approach doing stunts, and I started coming up with better ways and safer ways of doing them. And that turned out to be my niche in the industry. And then I was just fortunate enough because of the technology I was developing and the machines that uh, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's stunt double, who was uh, oh, wow. starting to coordinate uh, his films, took me, you know, took me on as his assistant. And oh, we ended up Peter recreating Kent. the way we did action films together. So we did, you know, all the Schwarzenegger pictures, Cliffhanger, um, uh, Jim Cameron's movies, uh, you know, uh, so we really redefined the way Hollywood action was done and the style that we did it. And now that's the way the entire industry does all of the major motion pictures like the Marvel franchises and everything else. So Sweet. we really had a profound uh, impact on the way action was brought to the screen. And so, yeah, the, uh, this was uh, Peter Kent. No, Joel Kramer. Joel Crane. Oh yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Peter was. Uh, Peter was. Uh, came in later. Peter was a phenomenal photo double. Um, it was. We used. We used Peter, and we used um, another another double. And I'm drawing a blank on his name. And then uh, Joel doubled him, and then he went into just coordinating mostly because anybody that uh, uh, it was Billy Lucas was our other double. And Billy so, is awesome. Yeah, so we, you know, it's like, um, I really enjoyed working with Arnold. We did a lot of pictures with him, and I always respected Arnold because of his athletic career. That's what kind of set him apart from most actors, is that he knew how to discipline himself for the stunts, uh, for the roles and things. So he was a very enjoyable actor to work for, you know, totally. at that particular time. So Did you ever hear about the story on how he almost died on the set of True Lies and Billy swooped in to rescue him. He's just walking I've around minding his own it. business. And I, I have never heard that story. I'd love to hear it. Uh, he, he addressed it like on a Reddit, I want to say probably going on five years ago. And it was just eye opening to so many people is like Arnold, you know, he didn't feel invincible. And, you know, but he also had to make it or break it attitude. And uh, uh, he was just like, I owe you my life, Billy. <laughs> you know? And uh, from that point on, you know, he, he was careful where he just walked and, you know, what roles he picked. And I think this is why so many people responded to him when they saw that he was just, you know, funding so many muscle mania related events and later became California governor is like, he just was relentless. And when he wanted to set out to do something, people knew he wasn't playing around, you know? <laughs> well, Arnold has always been like that. And True Lies was an incredibly difficult shoot because of the uh helicopter sequence out on the bridge in uh the in key west and um it was a tough shoot any shoot with jim cameron is a challenging shoot because jim always pushes the envelope and that uh 
you know, I, they had a lot of stuff on the tops of buildings and things. So mm -hmm. I don't exactly know when, where, or what that, that particular incident happened, but uh, um, I don't know the details of it, but I've had Arnold's life in my hands several times. Yeah. Hey, you know, it's, it, it is a challenge because yeah, it's also responsibility and uh, the right people get it. And as long as he doesn't play around, you know, it's, it's fine. I'm glad you got to work with him. Um, so, yeah, Joel Kramer, for those who didn't know, he was, yeah, also the second unit director and producer. Uh, his probably what most people had probably seen were his, you know, Michael Mann productions like Heat and Collateral. So, yeah, Joel, Joel uh, was the number one coordinator in the world for a decade and I was with him that, you know, maybe need a little longer than a decade. And we had a, we still have a fantastic friendship and, um, you know, the, uh, we're both, he's in his mid sixties, I'm 71, uh, nice. but we still, we both still work. We both enjoy working and, um, you know, the, uh, really when you look at, motion pictures that was the time frame when it was real action it wasn't cgi action it was legit we did it and we pioneered how the action was done uh, with the technology and the techniques and uh, they're still using those same basic techniques and technology today but yeah they they're using a lot more cgi now you'll notice than they did back in the classic 80s and 90s uh totally by yeah, definitely by like the mid 90s it just seemed like it was in jeopardy of just so many careers and it's like guys you know use cgi you know for like spaceships don't use it to replace actual like explosions and car chases <laughs> it is what it is with budget but yeah i'm well it's it's a uh it's a style of filmmaking that allows you to do things that were not possible but at the same token, uh, it also allows the director, if he wants to push the envelope of, of what's reality. And uh, the audiences appear to enjoy that, uh, going over the reality line a little bit. And perhaps it's because our addiction to uh, video games. That's a good segue, because it does seem like for a while, uh, how to say, uh, basically, uh, yeah, you just had that adrenaline kind of junky theme for action movies. And then, yeah, when you get into video games, yeah, you're essentially uh, just, you know, you're, you're in the middle of it. It's like a roller coaster. You just can't look away from it. You want to be a part of the event, even if you don't want to actually participate in it. And yeah, no, that, that's a good comparison. Yeah, it's, it's, it, and it works and it makes a lot of money and I have no problem with that style of filmmaking. Uh, I'm getting a little, uh, uh, I think it's, I'd like to see some more authentic, uh, oh, more authentic action that's more uh, human, humanly emotionally based and get more of a balancer. I think there's audiences for that as well. But you can't argue with the success of, uh, you know, the CGI uh, 
the CGI action packed movies. This could parallel. I, I remember Dan Bradley, who had worked on all kinds of blockbusters like Cradle to the Grave and Born Identity films, and he talked about his like I, when he was filming giant, yet extremely dangerous car chases. Sometimes where he was actually involving the stars of the movies, like, uh, it, it was like the best example of I got my life in your hands, and I'm also gonna make a very emotionally resonating story too, in you know what's otherwise also very cool, you know. Uh, genre yeah. piece. Yeah, Dan's a very good friend of mine. We've done oh, sweet. a bunch of movies together, including, you know, some of them you mentioned. And uh, uh, Dan and I are contemporaries. Uh, I think I've probably done 15 movies within minimum. Um, you know, he's a, he's a genius. He really is. He was one of the uh, most underrated action directors that we had in Hollywood. And I haven't seen him in quite a while and I don't know what happened. I know he went off and was working in India and the uh, Indians were paying him quite a bit of money to come and make movies there. And that was the last time he called me is uh, something about an Indian production. But uh, Dan is a remarkable uh, human being and a, and a real creative genius. Absolutely. Um, I know he was working on various other blockbusters like the expendables and what have you so i mean but yeah it's not uncommon to just go overseas and find a cool bollywood or hong kong production to be a part of and i, I definitely got the fearless vibe that you got uh, and uh, i think like you say i mean eventually everyone wants to be a storyteller it's just like when actors become directors or uh you know makeup people start doing different kinds of stuff like practical effects or uh, just even uh, unit production management you know it's just when you've evolved you know it's, it's kind of like when you're the employee versus you're the boss you know you you want to actually uh, just uh, gravitate and do something you haven't done as well as just really just you know make an impact and great impression on others well, me, I do it because it's an art, and I love the art. I love the process. Uh, um, I love being around creative people. Um, I, I sometimes don't like the, the BS of the industry, but the actual making of movies is such a, an exciting creative process. And when you've accomplished something that virtually seems impossible or unlikely it, it's such a gratifying feeling i think that's the uh the best part of it is that sense of accomplishment when something really unique and uh and uh something special it's well planned out and it actually happens it's it's really exciting that's all i can say uh, totally i'm very impressed that uh your levitation company was introducing various material like the carbon x hood which is for flame resistant stunts and you did a pep talk at the american film institute all back in 2011 have you noticed some progress from some of those contributions or do you think everyone's kind of just uh doing their own kind of formula and uh would you like to see a little more just kind of uh uh, just people following each other's advice and just acknowledging each other. <laughs> well, we're right on the, the, the launch pad of, uh, of another 
organizational, industrial organizational revolution in motion picture making and in action. And uh, it's just a matter of how it's going to break out. We're, we're, uh, the, the industry's been using the model that Joel Kramer and I uh, pioneered very successfully and it's making the industry a lot of money. Um, but when you really look at action, it's getting to be pretty cookie cutter and pretty redundant if you watch uh, the movies and even the storylines are getting a little uh, recycled if you, if you look at the blockbuster movies. But you, you can't blame the studios for that because um, people seem to want sequels. You know, that's they want another Spider-Man. They want another, uh, you know, superhero movie. And uh, God bless them if if they can make a billion dollars off of each one of those, they're going to keep. They're just going to keep making them. But there's there's we're right at that point in history though where there's the opportunity to take uh, storytelling and movie making action to the next level. Uh, just and it's mostly a tech a technology issue. We've gone. Uh, it, it's like everything we, when, uh, there's certain times where, you know, there's pay dirt, like when you're mining new ideas and then, uh, you find those big nuggets and then it gets harder and harder, harder to, to have breakthroughs, uh, and give a new look to filmmaking. Uh, one of the best examples of a breakout look, I think is, uh, the first matrix when they brought totally. over the, when they brought over the Chinese, wire uh, wire masters like Wu Ping. Um, and then they train the actors for six months to actually do their own fight scenes instead of having to double them. And then they were lucky enough that uh, the bullet time uh, uh, look uh, was developed and they adapted that for the movie. And it all just, it was a perfect storm of classic Hong Kong filmmaking with uh, American actors and stars that were that the company uh, took the time to train, which they normally don't do because they're, they don't want to spend the money or take the time. And then they were lucky enough to have those new special effects, that, that bullet time, which uh, it just dropped all of our jaws because it all came together. And that was, that's a perfect example of, we've had now had 20 or 25 years of, or 20, 22 years of movie making, that that's been the standard. And we haven't seen any breakout um, shooting styles or, 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 or movie making styles, except for added visual effects since then. So you'll notice everything has been kind of a, uh, a certain way, a knockoff of, uh, you know, the Matrix. Well, no, that's <laughs> a good uh, indicator because, yeah, the Matrix was just so groundbreaking and it seemed like there was just a lot of Hollywood types who just didn't understand why it was awesome and they just wanted to replicate it without knowing why it gelled, why it worked on a story or an action level. So that's very true. Um, uh, do you feel like uh, people are trying to get a little more crafty with martial arts-based entertainment, especially in the uh, post-Taken and John Wick and Equalizer world? Or is it still kind of struggling? Well, John Wick was taking the concept of training your actor 
mm-hmm. and building on the foundation that was laid with Wu Ping 20 years ago and taking that, uh, it's like following a, a, um, a vein of gold. And uh, uh, it, it, I, I was gonna go see the new Matrix last night and, I, and we're gonna go see it tonight. And uh, I don't, even though I worked on it, I don't suspect they did anything that was different than what you've seen in the last two or three of them. So what they've done is they've just mined that vein of gold for the last 20 years. So um, something else is going to have to be done to break the mold. So what they did with uh, John Wick is they, they took the actor and they took that training him to the, to the extreme. Now they've done uh, a Buster Keaton style move uh, with Tom Cruise, where they take him and they've pushed him, uh, and he's a good. And Tom Cruise is a good stunt man, and so they've they took him and they placed him as far uh, down that vein of gold as as possible. But you can only mine so much out of a concept, right. which was you know the Buster Keaton concept, and that's what Tom Cruise essentially did, and he's done it very successfully. Because look at how many Mission Impossibles we have. Yeah. We're doing our, and much like Fast and Furious, those are critical proof. Like, it doesn't matter if you do or don't like Tom Cruise. Everyone wants to see the spectacle and an escape for two hours. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. But, it, you know, it, it's like you can only get so much out of Tom Cruise and he gets older every year. Right. So, um, so again, you're just, you're just following a vein of gold that, gold that works. You found an actor who could do what Buster Keaton did. That's very true. We we got, and you know, post taken and John Wick kind of was popularizing again the whole. I mean, even the Expendables to some extent, just having the aging action star making a comeback, you know. But like you say, it is pretty much tapping into the gold and it's doing your greatest hits rather than contributing anything new. So, uh, yeah. Now, re- Jackie, if you really look at Jackie Chan, he has probably done it better than anybody. Yeah, the you really, really, honestly look at it. And they've tried to duplicate Jackie's formula with several actors, if you think about it. And but but Jackie's really done it the best, and he's a creative genius. Um, when you really get down to it, he's one of the most creative geniuses that we we've had in a long, long time. I totally concur. I uh, I was really uh, just blown away by some of his more recent choices because it's like it wasn't, you know, his brilliant. Uh, just you know come and see my stunts or even see me do some physical comedy it was even just a totally different dramatic appeal at that point and you know he has that freedom now where he can practically do whatever he wants now and well it's not freedom it's his body is spent (laughs) well that too and so now he's got to be extra creative now (laughs) he's like and tom's gonna have the same problem here in the next five to ten years you know because uh you know, Jackie uh, has a little more creative approach than Tom does. Tom uses uh, cubic money, and Jackie uses cubic creativity and surrounding himself with creative and uh, amazing people. Where, uh, where Tom, uh, they've got the money, and they've got the people, and they get the rehearsal time. And um, But Tom does do, do his own stunts just like Jackie did and and 
you know, you, you can't take anything away from Tom. And same with uh, the John Wick. I mean, the choreography, that's taking choreography right. I mean, what else can you do more than what we've seen in John Wick and those movies? It's pretty, uh, I mean, we're right up against the, uh, the limit of what human beings in, can do um, in a creative sense, unless there's some way you can take things to another level a complete different uh, industrial approach. Absolutely. Out of all the franchises that you have been a part of, uh, which ones really resonate with you outside of Matrix? Um, I never think in those terms. I mean, I, okay. I, I was the Terminator in, you know, the T-1000 in, uh, in, in a scene in T2, and, and that's, that's an iconic character. That's probably my most iconic character is, is being uh, the Terminator in Terminator 2, the other okay. bad Terminator. Cool. And uh, uh, my wife and I went and saw the, uh, the Master you know, Anniversary remix in the theaters. And it's, it's still, it's just as good today as it was when it was made. And that's really the test of a movie, in my opinion. When you, when you go and watch it 20 years later, uh, was it as is it as good today as it was when it was made? And most movies aren't. Most movies um, don't age well. So uh, um, my favorite movie to work on was Cliffhanger because I got the we we spent uh, three months in in Cortina. The first month, Stallone decided he was going to re, uh, rewrite the script. So we had free lift tickets for a month and we skied for a month and got paid to do it in Cortina, Italy. And <laughs> which was awesome that we had two months, months of working on the mountaintops, which was, you know, hard, but beautiful. And then we had three months in Rome at the uh, Cinecittà Studios in Rome. So that was probably my most memorable movie to work on. When I watch it now, it's kind of dated, uh, Cliffhanger is, but the action's still pretty awesome, and it's really inspiring for me to watch it. And uh, and then I and I really enjoyed doing all those movies with Arnold. Uh, he was fun to work with because I got to work with Arnold all the way through his prime. So I think I did seven or eight movies with Arnold. I think so. That was really my favorite part of my career. Oh, stellar. Um... Do you have any other uh, Arnold moments that stand out to you? Just, just like, just are second nature to you now. You're like, oh man, that was a great day of filming, or man, I'm still glad that stunt still looks great on screen, or that movie is still extremely entertaining. <laughs> well, I mean, all of those movies were fun to work on. My first Arnold movie was Commando. My last movie with Arnold was. Uh, Oh gosh, uh, I'm drawing a blank now. It, it's it it was his first comeback movie after being governor, and so I've done a oh, lot. The last stand. The last stand, exactly. And um, you know, it's 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 it's. Uh, how do I just say this? I did three hits. You work with someone who's the biggest box office draw in the world. And then you see him struggling uh, to maintain his um, 
star power. And it's, yeah. and it's uh, heartbreaking is all I can say because times change, people change, movies change. And it's, you know, when you, and you, and you reflect back on all the craziness of working on those big movies, the, the drama, and, and it, and it's always difficult to just, it's kind of like reminiscing over your high school days. Maybe they weren't quite as good as you remember them, but you still always think, wow, that was cool being in high school. But you forget about the bullies, you forget about the peer pressure, uh, and you only remember the good times. That's, you know, so really working during those days in the 90s, 80, late 80s, mid 80s, through the 90s, they were, it was real Hollywood back then. You know, and I got to do the last big Hollywood movie at Sony, which was MGM. I did Hook with Steven Spielberg. And they they say that was the last big Hollywood movie that made in traditional Hollywood style, the way they made Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind and movies like that. And so I got to see Hollywood when Hollywood was great. And, um, you know, we'd be on stage and Liza Minnelli would come visit one day. The, oh, the, king, the king and queen of, of uh, Jordan came. Uh, Crosby from Crosby, Stills, and Nash came. Uh, we had all these people doing cameos and walkthroughs. And, uh, you know, uh, Janet Jackson and uh, Liza Minnelli. And, and they were all, I mean, it was, it, was, it was awesome. Plus working with Robin Williams and hanging out with him. And, I mean, those are the kinds of, moments and stories that I've got to participate in. And when I was actually doing them, it was stressful, it was difficult, but it was also cool at the same time because this is not an easy industry. No, not at all. Do you have some other fun stories about working with the greats such as Stallone, Charles Bronson, Fred Dreyer, and even Burt Reynolds and Clint Eastwood? Well, most of the time when we're on set, we're there to get the job done. And the stunt people, we're, we interact with the actors sometimes, but mostly we're there getting the action done while they're in their dressing room. So, um, yeah, you interact with them a bit, but it's mostly business. I, I, I can't afford to hang out with actors because they make a hundred times more money than I do. And uh, I can't afford to hang and spend the kind of money they do when they're uh, blowing off steam and uh, doing what they enjoy doing. So I tend to just stay close to home, stay, uh, uh, you know, take care of my family. And I think that's the reason why I've had so much longevity as well as I don't run with the Hollywood crowd. I, I tend to, uh, just be with my family and take care of business and right. look as it as a job, not a uh, lifestyle. Gotcha. Gotcha. I just figured it was just more just like in between kind of moments when everyone's setting up shots or doing second unit type stuff. Well, there's moments when you're exhausted and stupid pranks happen. And I'd rather not talk about any of those because um, we're all acting like a bunch of, sophomores in high school and we're grown men and um it's a turn and uh it's 
it's nothing to be proud of. Does that make sense? No, totally. And, get it. and so, um, but yet, you know, you've worked for 14, 15 hours and you're exhausted and uh, then somebody cranks a joke or lets off a big fart or something like that. And, and, <laughs> it, and it's like being in high school. It's just, it's ridiculous. And then I've seen things that I, you know, that I wish I hadn't seen as well. You know, yeah, this is Hollywood. Um, all the things, you know, well, like the Heidi Fleiss and the Harvey Weinsteins and the thises and the thats. It, it goes on and, uh, and I'd rather not, you know, implicate or talk about that stuff with anybody. You could, you know, let your imagination run wild. Gotcha. That's the stuff I, I didn't want to participate in because I just, it's, it's too fast of a crowd for me. I've been married 43 years now and I, I plan on staying married for another 43 years. Congrats, you know, because <laughs> there's a lot of people who, you know, marry, but, you know, it's just for the hell of it versus they actually want to commit, you know. <laughs> so I think you could sit, make that uh, metaphor with definitely with stunt performers as well. There's a lot of people who get into the film industry, but they're not ready for the mature responsibility. So it's tough to yeah, well, pinpoint. Why. Well, this is actually the easiest time in history to get into the stunt industry uh, because it's much, much easier to get your union card now than it's ever been. I've heard uh, that a lot and it's very know. surprising, but it makes sense also, you know, that it, uh, whether it's being an extra or definitely, yeah, just being a sword fighter or being able to do a dangerous uh, perform, uh, you know, action segment in the background, and uh, yeah, and it's a, it's a great profession. Um, it's easier to get in now than ever. There's more films from all over the country than ever. The challenge is making a living doing it. It's harder to make a living now than it's ever been, but it's easier to get in and be in a film than it's ever been. So it's kind of a betwixt and between. Um, and there's actually fewer people that earn a living uh, as a Hollywood stuntman or woman than play in the NFL or the NBA, if you do the math. And I consider being a professional stuntman that you uh, make your SAG insurance and a pension credit, and it take you have to earn thirty-five thousand dollars to do that. And there's there's not very many people that earn thirty-five thousand dollars in a year uh, working on a motion picture set. So you're really not a professional Hollywood stuntman or woman unless you make thirty-five thousand dollars. And there's maybe, like I said, there's fewer of us than there are people playing in the NFL and the NBA. Gotcha. Um, are there any uh, stunt performances that people also recognize you from uh, besides Cliffhanger or T2? Like, are there other ones where people are like, I saw your movie on TV, and you're like, hey, yeah, I'm in that scene. You know? um, I'm, <laughs> uh, let's see, let's see, uh, Fast and Furious, uh, I think it was eight. I, I'm Elevator Man in that. Uh, where I, I do a scene where you know the elevator opens and there I am, and uh, it's the raining car sequence. And it's kind of funny because uh, I'm also driving the limousine that's getting bombarded 
by the raining cars. And I'm the guy in the elevator as the cars start to drive themselves and they start raining down on the, uh, uh, the Russian ambassador with the, with the nuclear football. So, uh, Sweet. you know, so, um, but I've got a, oh, I'm also a commando in the, in the shed scene. Uh, Arnold throws a, uh, a saw blade and chops the top of my, scalps me and chops the top of my head off that you can see me in that sequence. Sweet. And, that is uh, a very key moment. <laughs> and, uh, um, and I, yeah, there's a ton of other ones. It's just, um, you know, I think actually, I think in true lies, I, I play the, the bellhop inside the hotel with the horse sequence. Sweet. And you, and I, and I get a really, <laughs> a really big, uh, spot in that. And you can see me in and, you know, and, and I never really think about that that much because what you think about when you get in the industry is where's my next job? Where's my next job? Because it's like um, uh, it's gratifying to do a job, but again, it, it's about making a living and where's your next job? So you're always, you know, I kind of picture a stunt person as if you if you live in a major city and you pull off a freeway uh, off ramp and there's a guy that says uh, we'll work for food uh, with this cardboard sign panhandling. That's what it's like being a stuntman or a stunt woman. Your whole life is like that. You're panhandling for your next job. That's a good contrast. Cause yeah, I would see actors complain, Oh, you know, I'm uh, struggling to get my next job. And it's like, well, half the time you just need a look or just a certain kind of role in, just got to be able to show up on time while with stunt performers you know not everyone can do the same kind of stunt or kind of dangerous uh mentality that it requires and that's so true is like sometimes i i see reports every once in a while about how producers and coordinators end up having to argue with the directors who you know are good at entertaining but uh, aren't very good at organizing stunt work. Have you, without naming anyone, have you seen stuff like that kind of happen every once in a while where you're like, what is this guy doing? How, how, do, how else do I explain to him, you know, that what we're doing is going to take a lot of time and money and, you know, we got safety protocols in place and we got to follow them. <laughs> well, more, what, I, what I've come to the realization is, is it's the director's movie. And as long as he's not going to hurt somebody, I generally let him do what he wants to do. I might come over and suggest a camera position or a camera move, but it's still his movie. And there's certain people that you work with long-term where they start to enjoy working with you and they listen to your input and actually ask for your input. Um, and those are the most rewarding relationships with uh, directors and actors. Um, but when everything is said and done, it's not our movie. We're there just to play a part. And as long as we keep ourselves safe and the people around us safe, that's all that really matters. Because if a director asks us to do something that I'm totally opposed to, I, I will fight him to the death. But if he wants to do something that I think is silly, it's his mm. movie. Let him be silly. You know, I mean... Uh, um, when it's my movie, then I can make my dumb decisions. So that's how I see it. Okay, very cool. You mentioned a various bunch of motorcycle and uh, helicopter stunts. Uh, were you able to work with the, the Tamburo brothers? I know they're like big, big in the industry for doing a lot of the 
eye-catching uh, helicopter on-screen stunts. Yeah, for, for years I've worked with them. They're one of the most famous helicopter families in Hollywood. Very sweet. Um, and we were mentioning before we got into this that you've been more lately working on various commercials and uh, music videos. Um, well, it just depends. Everything runs in cycles. The beauty of uh, what's happened is, is when MTV went down, they quit making music videos. And uh, most music videos aren't all that fun to work on unless you're working for a major label um, because they don't have the money. But um, recently I've been working with Atlantic Records and, um, and I've gotten to do some pretty fun stuff. Um, yeah, like last Saturday night, we were drifting with a uh, McLaren, you know, like a $350,000 car. So, I mean, it's like we get some really cool toys to play with and the, and the uh, talent, they were awesome. And, um, you know, there's like anything else when you work with wonderful people, I don't care what I'm on. If I enjoy the people that I'm working with, that's what makes this business work worthwhile. And if you're on the biggest movies with people that are not fun to work with, because you don't you, you don't make that much more money work. Well, let's little people. Let me just rephrase that. Us little people generally make the same amount of money on the small projects as we do on the gigantic projects. It's only the big stars that make the big bucks on the big movies. So for us, it doesn't matter. We make the same amount of money no matter what size show we're on. So it, it get, then it gets down to, are we doing fun stuff and are we working with good people? So that's, right. you know, and, and I don't care if it's a big project as long as we are creative and I'm enjoying the people I'm working with. Very well said. Uh, I saw that you had also worked extensively on a bunch of PM Entertainment uh, group uh, productions. For those who don't know, they were pretty big on the home video industry. They would premiere a lot of their movies on TNT and HBO and they were just doing so many da like dangerous like raffling and car stunts. Uh, do you have any fun memories of those as well? Well, PM was the bottom of the barrel. Um, my crew would say, let's don't do those ever again. And then we wouldn't have a job for a week. And then they'd call and we'd go do another, another PM movie. Uh, my my director friend Spiro Rosados, who's probably the greatest action director. Yeah, that's a big name uh, there. Yeah, he's yeah, the and, second unit he, guy on Captain America too. Yeah. Yep, and for all the Fast and Furiouses, and he's actually uh, going to Paris, and he asked my son and to go to Paris with him, and he's doing Fast Ten and Eleven, and my and you know my wife and my son are going to go off on that, and if I go, great, um, but. Sparrow did about 30 of those stupid things. And it was like going to film school going and getting paid to do it when we worked for PM because we'd turn over cars, we'd throw people off buildings, we'd light them on fire. We'd, uh, any, it was ridiculous. Their, their whole uh, formula was uh, a 90 second action reel with one recognizable actor, lots of explosions and maybe some TNA. And that was, and they sold movie after movie after movie, and they did about uh, 30 or 40 movies a year. And uh, 
they they used about three different production crews, and Spiro was one of them. And uh, that's where Spiro learned all of his camera moves, camera tricks. Continuity didn't matter; they didn't care. They just wanted to keep it in budget and do big stunts. And so um, the stunts we did on those shows were ridiculous. And when I say ridiculous, gigantic. And <laughs> is that. Uh, we're all still alive and how we're still alive I have no idea you know so but they were horrible unwatchable movies but they had the biggest action sequences you've ever seen <laughs> yeah they were definitely not as influential in the film market I know they yeah were just from the Vegas area and they just decided let's do a lot of cheap sleazy yeah and, and what happened with Spiro was hilarious because he had the best directing demo reel in the business and then um <laughs> um his coordinator was uh andy gill they did they've worked together for 30 years and and andy was on bad boys down in, with uh uh michael bay yep. i think it's and so the studio demanded that Michael Bay have a second unit director to speed up production. And Bay always didn't want to have a second unit director. A lot of first unit directors don't want a second unit director. So they hired Sparrow and he shot nothing. He, he, the, Bay just told the studios that Sparrow was doing second unit when he, then he wasn't. And so the, the movie was finished and Sparrow didn't do anything. And then when he, he was, his name was on the credits and his phone started ringing off the hook. And and I and, and I pulled him aside and I said, Sparrow, I've been telling you for 10 years, it doesn't matter what you can do. It only matters what credits you have. And he was dumbfounded because his phone has not stopped ringing since uh, Bad Boys. And he was always the most talented action director that I'd worked with for the most part. Um, you know, I might I might throw Dad and Bradley in there as a close rival, but but. But Spiro could never get a big job until he was on Bad Boys, and he didn't do anything on the movie. But that one credit catapulted him right to the top of the industry. That's it's wild, because like you say, that's, everyone looks at the, the credits. Not if it's all about your credits, it doesn't matter what you can do. It's all about what shows you've worked on. It's system. It's crazy, and and that's one of the problems with Hollywood is it's a poser industry. Very true. Hell, same could be said in even just regular job industries. I, I see so many times where people go to a job interview and they're just asking them just by the numbers questions. And when it comes down to follow-up interviews, it's just ridiculous how like they, uh, uh, they'll ask for a second opinion, like from a previous employment. And then they will just take that with a grain of salt and hire you anyway. So it's like, well, why did he even want a second opinion? <laughs> yeah, I don't know the, the 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 dynamics. I just observe and watch, and that's why I'm thankful that I've I've worked small shows, big shows, and I always look at people at what they can do. I see talent. I don't see um, credits. And I watch a lot of what's going on on the big movies now, and I and I see the lack of creativity, and um, and you know it is what it is, and you know, and everybody's where they're at for a reason. But um, 
but that story of Spiro was, you know, I mean, he was dumbfounded because he sent his reel everywhere and his reel was off the hook, but nobody cared. It wasn't until he got that one credit that the phone started ringing off the hook. It's wild. And I see it also too when with how the IMDb ranker goes, like half the time you'll see like a recent movie that's coming out and everyone's like, well, I'm not necessarily even in a role where I'm legible. You can actually see me. <laughs> no, I, I don't even follow any of that stuff. I, I don't even go to, I very seldom go to IMDb. And like I said, only about two thirds of my credits are on my IMDb. And, um, and I don't care to be blunt. So, um, you know, I, I use the philosophy of if I enjoy the people I'm working with, it's the best because generally I make the same amount of money if I'm on, um, a Marvel show or if I'm on something else. So it doesn't matter. So there we go. I saw that you also had a few stunt rigging credits. Um, did you enjoy that a little bit more? Cause you know, you're, you know, you're ensuring everyone's safety a little more, even though you're not in the coordinating position, you're still making sure that uh, just a few other physical features and uh, just, other material that's happening, whether it's messing with the stage or just another special effect that's going on at the same simultaneously with a stunt performer, uh, just again contributes to the story and displays well on screen. Well, stunt rigging is a profession that I actually invented. I was the very first person to uh, start rigging stunts on a SAG contract, and it was Joel Kramer that did that. I started inventing uh, machines when I first came into the industry. And that was my background with motorcycling was research and development and prototype work and uh, research and development. And so as I saw the technology they were using uh, to make movie stunts, uh, it was essentially the, the technology that had been developed in the 1930s and 40s. And, you know, and they hadn't changed much of anything. So as I saw how they were doing things, I'd always kind of look at it and think, well, there's a better way of doing this. Mm -hmm. And when I would mention it, people would become very angry because they were taught how to do it by their mentors. And in a certain <laughs> way, I was insulting their mentors where all I was doing was just bringing my mechanical mind into the, the stunt business. And so uh, the first machine I did was the air ramp for throwing people through through the air. I improved that. Then then wire pull ratchets. Then cable falling machines. Then how to make people light on fire better and virtually every everything else. So um, I actually created it the the position and the uh, the industry of stunt rigging because when I came in, special effects was doing all of that. Mm. And so when I started doing it the special effects guys were extremely angry. And so I was very unpopular with the special effects men for decades because they saw stunt rigging as their area uh, for their union. And so now there's thousands of stunt riggers worldwide. But it just makes more sense that stunt people do it because uh, we understand performance better than the effects guys do. And we have more empathy for the people on the end of the wire because we've been on the end of the wire ourselves. And uh, so that's how I got into the stunt rigging part of it is Joel Kramer 
started carrying me uh, as his assistant uh, because I had all the advanced technology and he wanted to make sure that he had it for his shows, which were shows like Ghostbuster and, you know, Terminator and uh, True Lies and, you know, the Stallone and uh, Heat and those kind of movies. So we, we did every movie together for 15 years minimum. And uh, we, we got around and everybody was doing their darndest to duplicate what we had done. And now the entire industry uses that, uh, that industrial organization and business model that Joel and I developed. Really cool. Well, I think that's can be best said. Uh, there's a lot of empathy that's lacking in parts of various industries, and well, hopefully, you can keep reminding many that again, you know, put you put yourself in other people's shoes, and you know. Well, it's been great chatting with you. You know, I'm gonna get going, but. Uh, you know, you're, you're, great, you're a great host. Uh, thank you for the questions. Is there anything else you want to ask in closing? Uh, uh, is there any uh, upcoming project that you'd like to promote that you're proud of? Well, obviously, you know, I worked on the new Matrix. It's in the theaters now. I haven't seen it yet. We're going to go tonight and see it. Um, um, I'm going to hold my comments. I've heard <laughs> Some of the people are saying they're not they're not as excited about it as his previous ones. But again, um, it's a challenge because um, we're right at the point in history where we have to take action to that next level, exactly like Matrix One did twenty years ago. Mm -hmm. And and we're kind of stuck in that that pattern that we we have to break that mold and 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 it's, and it's always hardest to make that paradigm shift to the next level and that's where we're at so uh is there anything else i'm proud of uh i, I can't mention it because it's an nda but i you know the the thing we did last night with the or saturday night with the drifting of the of the um of the mclaren was it was just fun and it was for you know a very major uh act um uh, what else is what can i talk about um you know, I mean, with the with with the pandemic, and with the struggle we have with uh, the economy and the restrictions, I don't think anybody can really predict what's what's going to happen next. We're all hoping for the best, but it but this the pandemic's had a a profound effect on the entertainment industry the same way it has with the other industries as well. <clears throat> so that all has to play out. Otherwise, I could, you know, give you all these grandiose um, stories about these fantastic things we're planning on doing. But I, I honestly don't know what's going to happen. I mean, uh, we'll just have to wait and see. We do know that, uh, you know, the major corporations want to take all production outside of the United States. They want to move to Eastern Europe. To Asia, anywhere mm. where there's cheap labor, and so uh, our industries, our entertainment industry, is going through the same struggles that all the other industries are going through, because gotcha. they want to break the unions, they want to get the cheap labor, 
uh, and they're looking for the subsidies that these other governments uh, provide. So it's basically corporate welfare for the millionaires and billionaires is what these corporations are doing. And everything's on wheels and wings and they, they just go wherever they can go. Yeah. yeah. And there's nothing as little people can do about it. I hate to end it on, on a sad note like that, but you know, we're, we're all just passengers of the current global uh, economy and, uh, uh, and dynamics and you know but but anybody with talent anybody with drive anybody with creativity there's always op always opportunities and that's what it gets down to and so I always know that there's this there's uh, a need for that and uh, so that's why I have a lot of confidence about the future hopefully I hope to share everyone can share your confidence as well and that the best can conjure up on screen and behind okay. the scenes. Yeah, Appreciate you talking to me and taking the time. Have an awesome day. Absolutely. Godspeed to you, sir. Thank you. We'll return after these messages. JURS Podcast is proud to promote AutoCorrect, an independent film company with experienced industry professionals who can serve all your film industry needs. They include self-tapes, voice actor recordings, demo reel editing, script revisions, headshots, and much more. They're actor correct at your request. Book them on Instagram. Hey, feeling down? Feeling low? Not enough podcasts about movies in your life? Why not try? They must be destroyed on sight! The new Podcast Cure-All. Sure to get you right with the world and on a path to better living. We have exploitation, we have Italian horror, we have zombies, we have slashers, we have crime films, we have spaghetti westerns, we even have sci-fi and sex comedies. So take a dose of... They must be destroyed on sight! As needed, and let the hosts, Lee Russell, Daniel Harper, Paul Romali, and the odd guest host, Cure What Ails Ya. Warning, may cause atrophy, African consumption, black fever, bone shave, chin cough, colic, cramp colic, Dropsy of the brain, elephantitis, grocer's itch, jaundice, mania, miasma, mortification, palsy, pox disease, rheumatism, scurvy, St. Anthony's fire, summer complaint, and worm fit in some people. Consult a physician before listening. Did you ever see a film at such a young age it left you traumatized with cinematic wounds? Ah, necrophilia. Ah, ah, ah. It's a dead issue, man. Don't, don't push it. Cinema PsyOps is a weekly podcast documenting an ongoing experiment on the mind of an unwilling test subject. No one should have to watch this movie. Oh, no one should have to watch this. <laughs> no one should have to watch this movie. Surprisingly, it's not a topic that a lot of people really want to tackle. I'm shocked, crude. I know, really. Right? It's the next sexual frontier that no one wants to explore. I am, in the most sincerest of senses, disappointed in you. It takes a powerful goddess like Connie, jam her arm down the monster's throat and kill it. Oh, I'm still tripping out over that. Even as a kid, I was like, I gotta find a girl like that. Every week, I, I get a new look of disappointment that I never thought I could get it's out of here. unimaginable. At 12 years old, you should not be watching this movie. Obviously. At 13, you should not be. 14, you shouldn't be. I'm not entirely sure even 17-year-olds should be watching this movie. Just because you're offended by something doesn't mean that you have the right to demand that it doesn't exist. Watching this film again, I had all of this, like, little nerd glee with everything Dude, that kept Little history up. doll yeah, popping up absolutely. at you. So I totally loved this film. 
hey, I know why you, you know, couldn't see that. It's because your brain's warped from watching this shit at 12 years old. Yeah, this is this is a rough movie. I told you ahead of time when we were getting ready to do it that it was How be did a rough you watch movie. this shit at 12? Because physical wounds heal, cinematic ones don't. Listen to Cinema Psyops. Hey, everybody. I'm Corey. And I'm Zach. And we're the hosts of Podcasting After Dark, a cast dedicated to late night horror and sci fi of the 80s and 90s often found on HBO and Cinemax. You know, the movies your parents didn't want you watching as a kid. You can find us every other week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, and Stitcher. This is what you want. This is what you get. Greetings, friends. My name is Dean Legero, and I'm the host of the 3324 Podcast. I invite you to join me and my lifelong friend Eric Kuber to come with us as we discuss the music and movies that shaped our life. Each week, we'll pick an album or film that we really connect to, and not only give you some great info and trivia, but also discuss, debate, and celebrate what it means to us and the journey it took us on. We also look forward to hearing from you and giving us some of your picks for us to check out and discuss. I think it'll be a really fun experience, so come along with us for the ride. You can find us on your favorite podcast provider and at 3324.buzzsprout.com. Thanks for your time, and welcome to the 3324 family. It's time, let's check our cue, baby. Pair it with a couple brews, baby. We love your movies. We love the bad ones, too. So we watch them all and pass their lessons on to you. Oh, yeah. Everything I learned from movies With a one last plot holes a gratuitous It's time to get busy with your friend Steven at eilfm.podbean.com We now continue with our program. Follow us on the web on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The podcast is available on Podbean, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Anchor, Apple, and anywhere else podcasts are available. Feel free to review our show and leave comments on any of those sites. Thanks a million for listening. It's a jacked up.